Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Welcome to today's Federal Society virtual event. Today, on October 4th, 2022, we are excited to present our Courthouse Steps Oral Arguments event on Sackett v. EPA. My name is Jack Capizzi, and I'm an Assistant Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. And as always, please note the expressions of the opinions um, are only those of the experts on today's call. After our speakers have given their remarks, we will turn to you, the audience, for any questions you may have. If you do have a question, please enter it into the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen, and we will handle those as we can towards the end of today's event. Uh, with that, I'll hand it over to Matt. The floor is yours. Thank you, Jack, and thanks for the Federal Society for hosting us today. My name is Matt Leopold. I'm a partner with the law firm of Hunt and Andrews Kurth, and I'm pleased to moderate today's uh, panel of environmental law experts to discuss the Sackett case, uh, which was argued yesterday as the first case in the Supreme Court's uh, 2022 term. Um, today, I'm joined by three distinguished guests who will offer insight and shed light into the oral argument and uh, their views of perhaps how it might come out. First, uh, I want to welcome uh, Damian Shipp. Uh, Mr. Shipp is a senior attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation, and he was counsel of record in the first Sackett case, as well as argued uh, yesterday in Sackett 2. Um, <clears throat> Mr. Uh, in addition to his significant Clean Water Act expertise, uh, Mr. Ship practices um, in direct litigation and friend of the court briefs um, in under federal and California Endangered Species Acts, uh, as well as other environmental laws. And he's frequently appeared in well-known publications uh, such as The Economist, New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal. Um, <clears throat> he obtained his law degree cum laude from University of San Diego School of Law and undergraduate from Georgetown. Um, next, we have joining us uh, Professor William State. He is the uh, practitioner in residence and an environmental and energy law uh, fellow at the American University College of Law. He has litigated a number of environmental um, and related cases in federal court, including the Center for Biological Diversity of the Interior at the DC Circuit which rejected the federal government's plan for oil and gas drilling off the coast of Alaska, in part because of climate change concerns. Uh, he publishes frequently and um, also serves as general counsel to the U.S. Climate Action Network. He's a, um, a commodity graduate of the Honors College at the University of California, Los Angeles, and um, a law degree with a law degree from George Washington. Finally, we have uh, Tony Francois. Tony is an experienced water and real property uh, lawyer um, specializing in environmental regulation and natural resources and constitutional law. Um, he represents home builders and farmers and ranchers, among other clients, and he's appeared and litigated in federal courts around the country and also uh, the Supreme Courts of a number of states. Uh, Tony was an attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation from 2012 to 2021, and he's a graduate of uh, University of, of California, Hastings College of Law, and uh, the University of San Francisco. So thank you, gentlemen, for being here today. Um, I'm going to get to questions real quickly. But before we do, for those in our audience who may not be familiar with the facts of this case, I'm just going to give a brief uh, factual and, uh, and procedural history. So. Sackett, the Sackett, the EPA case is fairly unique, having made two trips to the Supreme Court in, in now 10 years, so one in 2012 and again uh, this year. <clears throat> and um, the brief facts are Michael and Chantel Sackett own a two-thirds acre residential lot in Bonner County, Idaho. Their property lies just north of Priest Lake, but is separated from the lake by several lots containing permanent structures. Uh, and in preparing to construct a house, the Sacketts filled part of their lot with dirt and rock. And then some months later, they received a compliance order from EPA. Um, according to the EPA, 
the Sackett's lot contained wetlands that qualify as navigable waters under the Clean Water Act. And so uh, they were ordered to remove the sand and gravel and to restore the property to its natural state. Uh, litigation ensued, and in 2012, the Supreme Court agreed that the Sacketts could challenge EPA's administrative order in federal court, contrary to the EPA's contention that the order was final, uh, non-final and non-justiciable. Um, af after a remand, um, the Sacketts had an adverse decision in the trial court and appealed to the Ninth Circuit. Um, and the Ninth Circuit found, despite EPA having withdrawn, withdrawn the compliance order in the Trump administration, uh, that it did not render the, the challenge moot and that the EPA does have Clean Water Act jurisdiction over the property as WOTUS or Waters of the United States. Um, the Supreme, the Ninth Circuit's reasoning was that under circuit court precedent, Justice Kennedy's concurrence in the 2006 case of Rapanos v. United States um, was deemed the, the property jurisdictional as there was a significant nexus between the wetlands in question and the navigable waters uh, in Priest Lake. Um, the Supreme Court then granted certiorari on the question of uh, whether the Ninth Circuit uh, uh, set forth the proper test for determining whether wetlands are waters of the United States under the Clean Water Act. So um, after two failed attempts by the EPA to promulgate rules defining WOTUS, <clears throat> many speculate that this case might finally bring clarity to a decades-long legal and regulatory battle. So with that, um, gentlemen, I'd like to begin just by uh, giving you the opportunity to share your thoughts on this case. So, uh, Damien, as the attorney presenting an oral argument, I'll give you the first opportunity. Thank you, Matt, and thank you to the Federal Society for hosting the webinar this afternoon. One takeaway, I think, from the argument is that the justices are unhappy with the status quo. I, I didn't sense that that, that anyone was particularly desirous of defending EPA's employment of the significant nexus test, in part because it has proven to be a difficult test to administer for the agencies. It's proven to be a difficult test for the regulated public to employ to know with predictability whether their property will be, will be regulated. It's also been a test that has resulted in limitation of a lot of, of um, use of private property as the Sackett's case uh, exemplifies. So in that sense, I think the court wants to come up with something different. Now, I think it's also true that there are a number of justices who are not particularly satisfied with the something different that Justice Scalia came up with in his 2006 plurality opinion in Rapanos. And that then makes it much more difficult to, to, to guess as to what type of, of answer the the court will give. Certainly, uh, the, say, Justice Thomas, Justice um, Alito, I think, and maybe the Chief Justice as well, as they all signed on to that plurality opinion in 2006, I think they're still by and large in agreement with that decision's analysis, which is basically that a wetland on its own is, is not a water and thus can only be regulated to the extent that it blends into and becomes indistinguishable from a water. But I think that Justice um, Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett, to varying degrees, are a little concerned about about that test, and and perhaps maybe thinking that there is, in Justice Kagan's words, at least a third way that would not be the significant nexus test, but would be something a little different from what Justice Scalia uh, set forth in his uh, plurality opinion. And then I guess my, my last takeaway is just that it was an incredibly long argument. And I think that that was, that was a little surprising because uh, the subject is, is um, significant for environmental law uh, advocates and for those interested in, in how, how environmental law affects private property rights. But it's not really a case that has broad public appeal on its face. And yet, nevertheless, it did it did attract quite a lot of attention from the justices that might have been in part simply because it was the first case of the term and also the first one argued in person after several years. But nevertheless, I, that was a little surprising. And I think um, just emphasizes that the court is concerned about the WOTUS wars over the last 16 years, but is not 100 percent certain as to how to resolve uh, that warfare. 
Thank you, Damien. Uh, Professor Snape. Well, hello, everyone. Thanks for having me. Uh, congratulations, Damien. Um, uh, impressive one hours, uh, one hour before the nine justices. I want to start with three things, and I'll try to a little bit respond to what Damien just said, but I want to, as he did in his opening remarks, take a slightly higher altitude. The first is, as Tony and Damien both know, and as I was getting ready for this uh, this discussion, what a long, strange trip it's been, said the Grateful Dead, and or sang them, and, and I think both can agree, but what a, what a journey it has been for those like the two of my fellow panelists who have been so involved in this, this, uh, this battle uh, for more than a decade. Uh, secondly, I thought it went better for EPA than I would have originally thought. Uh, for those who don't know me, that makes me happy in general. Uh, we can get more into that later. Uh, and then my third point is, but we'll see. You know, reading tea leaves from oral argument is always dangerous, uh, despite what I think is the clear legislative intent, uh, which I think is consistent with uh, the Ninth Circuit's decision. I think Damien's right. I think questions about line drawing persist. I think questions about overzealous governmental authority still exist. And and so, you know, who knows how that will play out as as the weeks and months. I, I predict this will likely be a you know, a June uh, opinion. But but anyway, we'll see. I think it'll take them a while to, to hammer all this out. Um, but I guess ultimately, I think that the line drawing particularly is always going to be hard. I, I think it'll be hard in 100 years, 200 years. I expect a narrow decision. We'll get into more of that later. I, I don't think I don't think this will be the sweeping Clean Water Act uh, decision. I think they're going to look for ways to keep it relatively narrow. Thank you, Tony. Thanks, Matt, and um, thanks to the Federalist Society for uh, for including me today. It's, it's an honor to join the other panelists. Um, I was struck by how little the argument seemed to focus on either of the tests as such in the prior Rapanos decisions. Since Rapanos, with its you know four vote plurality opinion for a fairly narrow reading of the Clean Water Act's coverage, and then Justice Kennedy's more expansive, but still somewhat, certainly relative to prior agency practice, um, somewhat more restrictive reading of it. Um, since 2006, those have been the two legal standards that have been involved in the agency's effort to apply the opinion, uh, the regulated community's effort to comply with the law, the agency's effort to you know, enforce the law. And the, you know, particularly a lot of the arguments in the lower courts over this issue over the last several years have been about which of those two opinions the lower courts should apply. And then the agency's you know, seriatim rulemakings have, have really focused on that as well. Given all that, I really did not hear much support for the significant nexus test um, as such uh, during the during the argument. At one point, Justice Kagan asked, I think both sides, let's assume we don't like the test that the Sackets have proposed. Let's assume we don't like the significant nexus test. You know, is there a third way? I think she literally asked. Uh, Damien at one point. So the 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 cert petition that that we filed said, "Would you like to resolve the four one split in Rapanos?" And the the reframe question that came back is, "What's the right standard?" And so, despite the fact even that um, you know three members of the court are still on the court who signed the plurality opinion. Um, even they didn't really seem to focus a whole lot on um, the plurality opinion from Rapanos uh, as a point of attack against uh, uh, the Solicitor General. So I think it's going to be an interesting outcome. I agree with Damien that um, the the three signers on the Rapanos plurality all seem pretty confident where they want to go. Justice Gorsuch was particularly aggressive on things like notice and line drawing. And, and he seems, um, you know, to be heading in the same direction, but it's very hard to read um, both Justice Barrett and Justice Kavanaugh where they're headed on this. And, and indeed, really, even Justice Kagan. I mean, it's, it's just not clear what her third way, you know, whether that, however many votes that draws will be formulated. 
Yeah, I I found that striking too. That um, many thought there might be five votes for Justice Scalia's plurality opinion coming out of this case. But um, hearing yesterday, I mean, do, does anyone still think that uh, that the plurality in Rapano's case might be the prevailing test coming out of this decision? It seems unlikely, and I'm not sure they have the chief justice anymore. I'm not convinced of that. I don't know, but I think I, I agree Gorsuch sounded like he was in that camp with Alito and Thomas, but that may be it on the Rapanos plurality. And, you know, I guess another important question at one point, uh, Justice Kavanaugh said this is going to be a decision that is, is important for wetlands throughout the country. That seemed to indicate, at least from his point of view, that this would be a broad decision. Um, thoughts on where the court might be heading in terms of a broad or narrow approach? Well, I'd love to hear Damien um, answer that um, because he was there and in and, and, and the thick of it. But I actually read Kavanaugh's comment there perhaps another way, which was this could have huge ramifications. I want to get it right, which I think leads to my conclusion that it, it this may all be about adjacency. We may not, may not even get to the the larger nexus issues, but I'll let Damien give his perspective. Yeah, I, I think the the argument um, in answer to, to, to Matt's original question, uh, just based upon the tenor of the questions, I don't think that there are clearly five votes simply to codify Justice Scalia's uh, opinion as such. And I think that there was some concern in particular voiced by Justice Kavanaugh and to some extent too, I think by Justice Kagan about the idea that um, that even under the, the, the Trump administration's uh, Navajo Waters Protection Rule, that uh, some wetlands that otherwise would be distinguishable from uh, abutting waters might nevertheless be regulated because they're only separated by a natural or a permeable berm or what have you. and. Uh, and so when I responded to that point, if I recall correctly, to um, say that, well, for the Sackets, that's not really an issue because their lot is bounded by by um, developed roads. I think at that point, he then said, well, but we're trying to develop something that, that's going to be broadly applicable or words to, to that effect. So I do think that they want to, to craft a, um, a general rule for wetlands jurisdiction and uh, my sense is that they uh, they want to be more restrictive than what the significant nexus test has allowed. But my second point is just that there was some confusion at the argument about this no notion of adjacency because uh, both because the you know the definitional text that was quoted in the question presented that the parties focused on doesn't mention adjacent and that term is found in a separate section of the act but at the same time the agency's regulation that interprets that interprets waters in the united states and what adjacent means that doesn't really import that doesn't purport to interpret this this um reference to adjacency in section 404g of the act it's actually a regulation that purports to interpret just waters in the united states and uh so i think my thoughts are not 100 percent well formed on this but i think part of the confusion might be is that you have some of the more conservative justices who are more textually minded who feel like perhaps there might be something that needs to be tweaked with justice scalia's test but they're trying to find a textual reason for tweaking it. And they're hitting upon this idea that in 404G, there is a reference in a parenthetical to wetlands adjacent there too. And I think they were trying to find a way in which they can satisfy their desire to tweak the Scalia test, but at the same time, respect the text. And I think they were, they were getting uh, befuddled by the fact that the, the agency's position is really that this 404G reference is kind of sort of icy on the cake, that that, that their approach is not being driven by that. So it, 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 there was some methodological confusion created by the fact that you have jurisprudentially conservative leaning justices who are at the same time trying to maybe incorporate a little more of an environmentally sensitive test. And I think that that was um, that led to some confusion on the bench. 
I have a related question from the audience uh, on this point, and it is, are the justices conflating Rivers and Harbors Act Section 10 waters and adjacent wetlands for that purpose and Clean Water Act Section 404 waters? Any thoughts, anyone on that? I would say that's a, it's very difficult not to conflate in a certain sense. <laughs> Part of that is just the lineage of the term navigable waters in the United States and then the way that the Clean Water Act um, separates that into two different phrases, one in the operative section and then another in a definition. And yet the, you know, a lot of the controversy over the Clean Water Act is how, how, how big or small a deal is that separation of the two parts of that phrase into different you know, pieces of the statute. And so in a certain way, you're always going to start from a standpoint of, okay, the Rivers and Harbors Act waters is this um, geography here. Even the evolution of the term TMW to, to refer to, because like, it's easier than saying the Rivers and Harbors Act waters, you know, reflects the fact that, you know, even if you take the view that the Clean Water Act redefined waters in the United States as a, as a different term of art it is a practical matter that's and, and really is a matter of legal analysis that's always going to then roll you back into well you start with the Rivers and Harbors Act waters and then you figure out how far out you move from that um, and then the I mean I, I would say that there's a pretty clear cross reference in 404G to the Rivers and Harbors Act waters I think one way of reading the adjacent wetlands parenthetical in that delegation is that it's not so much a definition of waters in the United States, you know, that they, they necessarily include adjacent wetlands, but that as to the things that the Army Corps is going to continue regulating directly, states will not be allowed to permit the fill of wetlands adjacent to those waters. That, that that's something that's going to be reserved to the federal government as it needs to. Um, so I, I'm not sure there's any way to disambiguate those. I think that they're always going to be conflated to some degree. That was very well stated. I, I agree with everything you just said. Well, we're, <laughs> yeah, we're hitting uh, on. That's it. <laughs> I'm glad, I'm glad we solved that one. Um, well, I mean, we're starting to get into, I think, what I saw as one of the features and, and frequent themes of the argument, which was around Section 404G. Um, professor, you know, do, what what did you make of the questioning around 404G and, and how might that influence the outcome? Yeah, I thought that was fascinating. Many justices referred to it. I thought Justice Barrett's um, question and point was particularly noteworthy just because who it was coming from and what I heard her to say. I haven't looked at the transcripts yet. Um, but she essentially said that if you cut out adjacent wetlands, the way that's worded, it's a donut hole situation where you say the feds can't regulate it. And by virtue of that section, nor can the states because of the way it's worded. And she was very troubled by a reading of that. So I, I, I think this is, gets to my, and I've already alluded to it. I, I think it's quite possible. I, I hear what Damien's saying, and I, I, I see a, a scenario where he he might be right. But I, I think the more plausible end result here is the Chief Justice negotiates a Maui-like uh, a solution, and they just focus on adjacency and leave the larger questions that Tony just sort of laid out of how challenging they are. Um, and big for a later day. And I think a big part of it's going to be uh, Section 404G is going to be a big part of that for sure. I think that's where EPA did well. Do others agree that this case could be resolved on adjacency alone, or do they have to get to significant nexus? I, in, in questioning from Justice Barrett, the Solicitor General's office um, affirmed that they need both the adjacency standard and the significant nexus test in the posture of the case in front of the Supreme Court. And it's, uh, to unpack that a little bit, um, the Sackett's lot is 300 feet from Priest Lake, and there's an intervening 
uh, intervening road and row of houses. And um, then in the other direction, it is 30 feet from a roadside ditch. And so it's separated from the roadside ditch by, uh, by the road. Uh, and there's no, um, no surface connection between either the ditch uh, or the lake and, and their, their property. And so under the, <laughs> trying to figure out if there's a way to actually simplify this, it's emblematic of the difficulty that the significant nexus test has introduced into all of this. The jurisdictional determination was twofold um, by the agency and advanced in the lower courts that it was adjacent to Priest Lake directly and that it was uh, and, and therefore did not need a significant nexus analysis because it was directly adjacent to a, a, a navigable lake. And in the alternative, that it was adjacent to the ditch across the road, which is not being a navigable water body, required a significant nexus analysis. And as the case progressed through the lower courts, the agency only advanced its theory of adjacency to the ditch and therefore required a significant nexus analysis. So as the case sits in front of the court, and this is what Justice Barrett confirmed, um, uh, with Mr. Fletcher from the Solicitor General's office to affirm the Ninth Circuit, the Supreme Court is going to have to retain a significant nexus test. If it jettisons the significant nexus test, it cannot affirm the the judgment below unless on another theory that uh, you know that the facts support. So I think they're going to address significant nexus um, probably by saying that's just not not what we're going to use anymore. Uh, but then I agree with Professor Snape to the extent that if there is a third way that Justice Kagan can uh, garner four more votes for, um, that's just going to raise a different set of questions. But they might be easier questions to answer, you know, for the agencies, for regulated communities, for the courts. I mean, you know, that's um, that's certainly a possibility. The discussion about using subsurface connection as the basis for that test. I don't think holds out the possibility of an easier to administer test. Um, so I think we are all, all waiting to see. Yeah, thanks for that, Tony. Before I let uh, Damien uh, hop in, just one PS, which is, I think it's also, and I agree with Largy again, what you said, Tony, that more than one justice was interested and began to realize the potential significance of the fact that the administration does have a proposed rule at OMB right now on these very issues. That I don't know how the court ends up dealing with that. It could go a couple different ways, but there was definite, it was repeated more than once that that was indeed the fact. I, I think that's a great point. And, and one that I wanted to raise is, you know, if, EPA attempts to finalize its proposed definition codifying the significant nexus test prior to the court ruling. I mean, what what would occur, and doesn't that uh, potentially cause more litigation in that? Doesn't seem like they're going to finalize it before this opinion, but maybe I'm naive. I don't think that I think they're going to wait. If I could just before addressing that, that part of it, just go back to the question of. Um, of, of adjacency, you know, I, um, again, this is kind of this, the, the, the source of confusion because I think what, what some of the justices were indicating was that the frame of reference for whether wetlands should be regulated should not be the line drawing rationale that Justice Scalia extracted from Riverside Bayview, but rather the fact that the only place in the statute where it seems like Congress contemplated the regulation of wetlands was 404G, where there's a reference to wetlands adjacent thereto. And so they, they want to develop a test of, of adjacency in that sense, but not necessarily in the terms that EPA and the Corps have independently defined adjacency in interpreting what waters in the United States means. See, this is the confusion is that this regulation that says that we can regulate adjacent wetlands antedates the text in 404G and it 
purported to interpret just simply the original definitional text in 502, the waters of the United States. And then I think maybe say Justice Kagan was would, would argue that, well, the 77 amendments essentially codified that understanding, that broad understanding of adjacency. But I don't think that that, that would be shared by a majority of the justices. And so I think if there's going to be a third way, I think it would be textually based upon this reference to to wetlands in 404G. But I don't necessarily think that it that it means that um, the agencies as they have interpreted it is necessarily the, the answer. But with respect to the rulemaking, you know, I I think that was an attempt. I think Justice Kagan mentioned it towards the end. And I think it was an it was an attempt for her to maybe buttress what seemed to be EPA's um, uh, flagging defense at that point that they can administer the act in a way that provides notice and that's fair and all that. And I think she was hoping that there might be some guidance in that uh, rulemaking. But the reality is that the rulemaking at least is proposed essentially just codifies the status quo immediately after Rapanos was decided. And moreover, at the argument, the, the deputy solicitor general said that the agencies are just not interested in bright lines. And the, so I, I, to the extent that, that, that the court would be hoping for bright line guidance from the rulemaking, I think it's already been stated that, that really that's not going to happen. Uh, uh, and um, Damien, I, I recall specifically a, a, a poignant moment when you use the phrase to apply 404G to interpret the definition of WOTUS is the, like the tail wagging the dog. Um, well, with, right? I just, sorry, yeah, I, I was just going to say, I mean, uh, if you read the briefs in the case, 404G, I mean, of course, it's the argument that the government uh, has made in all of these cases. It relied upon 404G in Riverside, Bayview, in Swank, and in Rapanos. And really, in, in none of those decisions was 404G um, that, that significant to the court's rationale. And so it was surprising that it was so prominent in the argument. And again, the reason why I think it was so prominent is that if you are a strongly textualist minded judge and you feel a little uncomfortable with the idea that um, that the Clean Water Act might not reach a certain number of wetlands and you're looking for a textual reason as to why maybe it's not quite as narrow as say Justice Scalia thought it was, then you would necessarily hit upon really what amounts to the only significant reference to wetlands in the text. And so 404G in the argument uh, became almost uh, abnormally significant, I think. Abnormally significant, certainly from our perspective, but again, also from EPAs, which, uh, and even at the argument that the Deputy Solicitor General noted that that they would make the same argument even if 404G didn't exist, which of course is chronologically correct because they were making that argument before 404G ex existed. and And so... That's one reason why I think it, it it's an indication that the 404G focus was more of a, a product from the right as opposed from the left of the court. Because again, it 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 is really the only the only clear textual support I think that that the agencies have for their for their their traditionally broad understanding of wetlands jurisdiction. You know, and I know I realize that's that is Damien's perspective, and it's it's um, I think it, I think it begs the question, the central question, because I don't think it is the tail wagging the dog here. And Tony alluded this to this problem. I, he maybe doesn't come to the conclusion I do, but the whole point of the term navigable waters means the waters of the United States was a purposeful hunt by Congress to a certain extent. Originally, it was debated and defined in those intervening five years, particularly they had begun EPA the process of recognizing that it couldn't mean every single body water in the United States, which we all now very well readily accept. And this came out, I think, yesterday that the, the whole process since 1977 has been EPA continuing to try to figure that very difficult question out. And I think that's why when Justice Gorsuch and, and the solicitor had that funny energy of you know, three miles, two miles, one mile, half mile, this, there is no right answer. And that's the point. And I and and I, I don't think there ever will be an answer. I think that's 
And that is that is very frustrating to landowners. I get that. But I don't think that means that it's the tail wagging the dog. It means that 404G is a way of adding some complexion and some narrowing of a term that we all recognize and the definitions is, is pretty broad. I, I do think, though, that on that point, um, there are a number of interpretive tools that the court has used in, in prior Clean Water Act cases um, pretty heavily in Swank to address that exact problem that uh, Professor Snape identifies, which is so there's this great exchange between the chief justice and the solicitor general where the chief was pressing for whether the agency had ever offered a clear you know, more or less bright line rule. And, you know, the Solicitor General basically conceded, we don't really think that's possible. And then the chief follows up with, well, have you reduced it to a vague rule? And, you know, that I think introduces things like major questions doctrine, um, you know, non-delegation, vagueness, principles that um, even if the 404G question leaves them very, uh, very little to answer how broad or narrow adjacent is. Mainly Justices Barrett and Kavanaugh to conclude that something a lot closer to the plurality is the only reasonable way to interpret the statute to avoid these other kinds of problems. And I think Justice Gorsuch did a pretty good job of demonstrating that, you know, adjacent and neighboring a or you know amenable of two different ways of looking at it the, the touching type of adjacent or the you know somewhere nearby adjacent and that the somewhere nearby adjacent approach to it doesn't really give you administrable rules that provide the kind of clarity that a lot of members of the court think are are um not just better policy but constitutionally necessary, um, particularly for statutes with criminal penalties. And um, so I think that, you know, even if they begin um, with an effort to textually, you know, draw the boundaries around 404G adjacent wetlands, um, the members of the court that aren't quite prepared to say the Rapanos plurality is the right answer are still going to get drawn that way by these other principles. I also wanted to briefly mention, Matt, your question about the rulemaking. I I have a tough time imagining EPA finalizing that rule before an opinion in this case. 100% agree, yeah. Yeah, because it, it seems very clear that significant nexus will not be an available standard for them to adopt in regulations. If they finalize this rule, they will then have Rapanos plurality, and significant nexus, significant nexus will be illegal. And they'll have adopted a rule that they then have to go through a rulemaking to change that adopts the plurality uh, as the more or less the outer limit of their authority. And, you know, that's, I think, not what they're going to want to have done. Um, and yet they'll have to go back to the beginning. Um, if, if they want to do something that tries to take a stab at uh, Justice Kagan's third way, they're going to have to recirculate a, a revised proposal for comment. I think that's, I can't imagine that, that any, any, any court would allow that to go through as a reasonable elaboration on the proposal. Um, so I, I think it's very unlikely at this point. Uh, I was expecting they would try to finalize it before argument. And they've done that in a number of uh, high profile clean water act cases. Um, it's never worked. And so that may just be, you know, what they, uh, um, you know, what they concluded is that this isn't going to help us. And, you know, we need to, we need to figure out what the answer is on this significant nexus test or, or we'll have stuck ourselves with the plurality and we, we actually don't want that as the only rule. Well, of course, withdrawing that uh, clean power plan didn't help them in West Virginia, but they're damned if they do, damned if they don't, I guess. I just wanted to respond real quickly. Uh, again, I, I agree with a lot of what Tony just said. I agree to the extent this decision goes big, delegation or non-delegation could enter into that for the reasons that I already stated. But I, I can't believe I'm the one going to really bring this up. But, you know, the so-called major questions doctrine, this little baby infancy 
in infancy doctrine um, is actually an interesting um, um, comparison here because this is clearly an area where EPA has been in the same lane, has been doing the same thing for 45 years. This is absolutely not new, not outside the lane. Congress has had ample opportunity to object if they wanted to. In fact, seemingly has endorsed on some level what EPA has done. So I, I think by actually discussing why it isn't major questions doctrine, I think it actually shows you partly where this might go, which is, I'm not sure significant nexus is dead, but I agree that if I were the administration, I wouldn't want to lead with it at this point. Like it has to be much better explicated um, that the, there are these number of factors that I think they would actually have to enunciate. And I agree with Tony from basic administrative law. If this is going to go administratively, they'd have to do another proposed rule. I, I would tend to agree with that if they're going to majorly change what they're doing based upon yesterday's arguments or a decision. We're getting a number of questions from the audience, and it might be a good time to throw a couple of those out. Um, one, uh, pr Professor Snape, you know, referenced the Maui decision and the seven-factor balancing test that came out of that. Um, do you, we saw Maui uh, referenced in the oral argument yesterday? Anyone have thoughts on you know if could the court go towards a Maui type resolution of this, and does that complicate the issue? I would, uh, you know, I, I I tend to think not only because the county of Maui was was the first case on that issue, and so they're going to try out to see whether a significant nexus analog will work, and and so I, I feel like uh, the courts already had that county of Maui moment in Rapanos and took this case because it, it wasn't satisfactory. So I, I would tend to think not. I mean, certainly. You know, we would we would hope that the county of Maui factor test wouldn't be necessary here because the text doesn't run out as quickly, so to speak, as it did in in county of Maui, at least for for the chief justice and for Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, and for what it's worth, when it did come up, uh, Justice the chief justice simply sort of distinguished it on its facts with respect to the EPA's attempt to. Um, to rely upon it, that it was in terms of notice that, well, that was a, you know, a sewage plant. And so you sort of expect that type of land use to be a little more cognizant of potential legal ramifications, especially at the federal level than you do with respect to just simply single home construction. But in the briefing, County of Maui was certainly something that came up with respect to, uh, to the argument that if the court were to adopt the Sackett's proposal, that it would result in in a significant amount of pollution no longer being regulated. And our response to that was in part, well, the principle of indirect discharge that the court adopted in County of Maui represents a sort of backstop to that argument. And that it certainly wouldn't recover everything that might be deregulated by a narrowed interpretation of wetlands jurisdiction through the Sackett's case, but it certainly would account for some of it. And that it, it was a way of blunting to some extent the criticism leveled against the argument that we were advancing as to being so broad that, well, in fact, even with respect to the Clean Water Act itself, a lot of this might still be in some form ultimately regulated because of this indirect discharge theory. Thanks. And another question that uh, a few uh, commenters have raised is, does anyone think the groundwater discussion, I think, you know, Justice Sotomayor engaged in really is relevant to the ultimate outcome here? I think it underscores how difficult it is to come up with a judicial solution to this at this point. I think that's it is it is we would have different perspectives on this panel on how that Gordian knot ought to be dealt with, but there are the there clearly are hydrologic connections. They're clearly, but there are limits just as there's limits as to what surface waters are covered, I think there'd have to be limits as to what groundwater is covered. And I don't think anyone is ready to offer a definitive rule on where that line drawing would be. So it just indicates how complicated the question, what is waters of the United States actually is. It is, yeah. It, one of the things the court was wrestling with was line drawing and, and um, 
counsel for the EPA struggled to answer questions about how to, to articulate a test such that a landowner would un- understand their uh, where the line is on their property. Um, how how much is that going to drive, you know, the, the reasonable person test going to drive the outcome here? Well, let me just start out real quickly and I'll let uh, the two folks who I know will disagree on, on with me on this um, go next, which is, I think had the Solicitor General offered a solution, that would have been ripped to shreds no matter what that solution was. That would, you know, absolutely for at least a handful of the justices, he was damned if he did, damned if he didn't. I think I think he I think he was well prepared not to go down that road, was not going to go down that road no matter what, because there is no one single answer. And as I keep saying, there likely never will be based upon the ecological and uh, uh, other complexities of this site by site type of analysis. But I'll let I'll let the others chime in on that. Well, I, you know, I, I, the he, the council for EPA was in a difficult position because it is true that that the significant nexus test is by design a um, a case by case analysis. Now, what he could have said, I suppose, is something that even Justice Kennedy noted in his opinion, which is that by rulemaking, EPA could classify certain non-navigable tributaries as so, as so significant that if you're adjacent to them, you don't even need to do a significant nexus analysis for them either, just as he would say with respect to adjacent wetlands uh, for traditional navigable waters. But it is certainly true that when EPA did attempt in the Clean Water Rule from 2015 to <laughs> to, uh, to create these um, clear boundaries to the significant nexus test's geographic reach, that was one of the reasons why uh, several courts found the rule to be legally defective. And and so there, I don't think there there was a a good answer. Uh, certainly not. I agree with Professor Snape. I don't think there's a there was an answer that would have satisfied. The justices who were asking the question, but I do think, and this goes to something that Tony mentioned earlier, I do think that this, uh, and of course, you know, we're advocates, and so we we want to hope that our side wins. But uh, but I do think, to the extent that you have justices like, say, Justice Baird or Justice Kavanaugh, uh, who are sort of leaning one way or the other, I think these additional concerns about notice. Another thing um, that came up in the argument is the criminal penalties of the act, which also turn upon the same jurisdictional text. Uh, federalism and um, clear statement canon, not necessarily major questions doctrine, but but the the idea that that um, a reworking of the traditional federal state balance requires a clear statement. All these little things, maybe on their own, may not be decisive, but when you start adding them up, I think it, it is relevant for a justice who's sort of sitting on the fence to lean more one way than the other, and maybe perhaps as Tony suggested earlier, to accept something that perhaps is not super textually satisfying for a particular justice, but nevertheless seems to get to the right result once you add in these other considerations. Damien, I thought that was very well said. And 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 of course, I don't end up where you end up, but but I think there are, so I, I agree that the, those dynamics are out there and maybe the chief justice, you know, will be on your side because of those things. He clearly, I agree, is is um, not embracing EPA here. But I want to point out the facts and the dynamics that are on the other side of this that I think actually are are against your position. Um, one is, is the fact that SACUS never even tried to get a permit, as far as I can tell. Uh, second is, is that your solution would have eliminated the plaintiff's solution would have elim- essentially eliminated protection for wetlands and tributaries under the act. Uh, and third, the a- agency rightly or wrongly, stupidly or not has been doing the same thing for 45 years, essentially based upon the direction of the Supreme court and Rapanos, like has been trying very hard to stay within what it thinks to be the lane it needs to be in. And I think that's weighing on the, all three of those issues, I think will bear upon sort of where the middle of this court is and which way they lean. Because I think we agree, it's this is not going to be a nine nothing decision. I think this will be a five, four, six, three in one direction or, or another. Just briefly on the permitting point, the EPA's conclusion and it's, uh, it's clear in the record, and I think this was actually communicated to the Sackets, is that uh, the EPA would not allow a permit to issue for this site. 
because of its view that it was um, a that it was um, uh, peat fen and b that the Sacketts owned other property on which they could build a house. Um, so as the as the case moved forward, permitting was really not an option. Nor is you know for a single family home, you know that's not in the Hamptons uh, or maybe some other zip codes. The cost of um, you know permitting uh, you know would, would be difficult to to, to bear under the economics of uh, building a house. That said, the, the the point about the availability of permitting is is, is certainly um, more relevant to you know better capitalized projects and so a lot of a lot of project builders um are more comfortable simply understanding how the rules work and capitalizing the regulatory cost of of wetland mitigation than fighting over whether they have to do the wetland mitigation Um, so i tend to think that even in practice relief for the sackets is mainly going to enter to the benefit of um um, relatively similarly situated property owners. The other, the other thing that is interesting, it never came up at all in the argument, but, but I think is an important aspect of this is that, uh, you know, Justice Scalia's um, observation in uh, the Rapanos plurality, that even if um, part of the tributary network were not directly regulated as waters under the act, they're still, almost certainly and obviously point sources. And so really what we're talking about here are, uh, is the placement of fill that, um, you know, point source pollution that would, you know, if you had to have an MPDS permit to put it into a tributary that under some more restrictive rule, were no longer directly regulated, you would still probably get an MPDS permit so that that unregulated tributary didn't subject you to, uh, point source liability when it arrived at a regulated water. And I think a lot of um, point source regulated industry is probably continue, would continue to be um, prefer to have a permit, A, because they've, they've already had them and they know how to deal with them, but B, because the permit is a complete defense to a citizen suit or enforcement liability as long as they comply with the permit. So I, I, I tend to think that the, you know, the scope of relief that, a, you know, a favorable ruling would offer really tends to inert the benefit of um, uh, smaller projects, you know, um, private landowners that are not in regulated businesses uh, and, uh, and, and the unwearing. I just wanted to throw a cherry on top of what I, I accept what you said. I mean, that those are interesting pushback points, but the, I think also the fact that the Sacketts knew about the EPA and core determination when they bought the property also, I think is a factoid. No, they were, they were not aware of that when they purchased it. Well, they should have been aware then because the prior landowners, how is that that they didn't know, but the prior landowners had the notice? Well, the, it, it, it's not clear in the record whether they purchased from the person that got the, um, Got the um, uh, got the prior jurisdictional determination, um, but they were not put on notice of it. the 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 Army Corps' library of site specific jurisdictional determinations is not. I mean, it's a public record in the sense that if you know it's there, uh, you can FOIA it and get it. Uh, but they're not publicly posted. They're not readily available. They certainly are not revealed by a title search. So it leads you back to the fundamental question of notice. How, how is it that a landowner, you know, if you're going to build a shopping mall, you're going to do a, you know, phase two environmental assessment, and it might come up. If you're buying a vacant lot in a subdivision that's built out, it's not clear what puts you on notice that you might want to go check with the United States Army on whether or not they've said that it's a regulated federal, federally regulated, uh, you know, water body. So, you know, a lot gets made of the fact that there are prior determinations on properties. My experience in practice is that that's a, that is a, um, that is a factor that biases in favor of enforcement. 
the fact that you know a prior owner had a jurisdictional determination done that the current owner was not aware of simply makes it a lot easier for the agency to get an enforcement approved because they don't have to go through the additional spade work of, of doing a determination on the property. And so you're going to have in enforcement cases, a much higher rate of there was a prior determination on the property uh, than in a randomly selected set of properties. You're a good trial attorney. There's a really, I, I, the pushback is effective, but I do still think, um, let me rephrase it. I, I left yesterday's hearing thinking that however the nine are going to interpret it, that it was well established that notice had gone to a prior landowner, that this was a wetland, a water of the United States, that the house, the proposed house, 300 feet away from a major lake, 300 feet is very close. 300 feet is very close. And before they did anything, they on their own just dumped not a little bit of gravel, a shitload of gravel, enough to basically be able to put a structure on and whether they did that in good faith or not, I'm just observing that 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 didn't that doesn't help. I actually think that that's going to it, it makes EPA look more reasonable in this instance that they weren't just coming down at the eleventh hour with a heavy hand and doing something new and irrational. That's that was really my point. Your your push your your fact back pushbacks are all fair, but I still think that what I just that perception that well, not perception that story that was unrebutted yesterday. I think is problematic for the Sackets. I really do. I'm actually optimistic the EPA is going to win this. I'm not, I wouldn't bet you anything on it. <laughs> Maybe so, be, but yeah. I, I, so just in summary, I mean, that this was the U.S.'s point that folks can go to the Army Corps if they have questions and ask. Um, admittedly, uh, it's difficult for untrained people to draw, find the uh, line between federal and non-federal jurisdiction out in the field. Uh, and, and the U.S. didn't have a great question answer on that. Matt, Matt could, could I just simply add, because uh, this this came up on rebuttal, um, Justice Jackson asked a few questions on this very question, on this very point of, of, of the Sackets really have notice. And uh, it certainly is true, as Tony says, that, that in the record, uh, there's only the Sackett's testimony that they were not given notice from either the title search or from, uh, uh, you know, the, the county building department, the sewer department, what have you. But setting that aside, the two points that, that I tried to make at the very end were that, A, this jurisdictional determination from 96, even if the Sackett's had been aware of it, would have expired several years before the Sackett's bought the property. So, you know, the Sackets could not have relied upon it. it. If it had been, say, a negative jurisdictional determination, they couldn't have relied upon it. Moreover, it was decided, of course, before Rapanos. So the jurisdictional theory that 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 might have underlain that that um, that determination also would have been passe. Now, I take, you know, Professor Snape's point that 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 it would have had if they had known about it, it would have had some some relevance to the question. Of maybe there's a, there's a scientific or wetlands uh issue but it, it it's definitely not it, it's i don't think it's fairly uh characterized as this was obviously a determination that that currently a, a permit is needed but i i take professor snape's point as well that sure it's very close to priest lake but again that's you know <laughs> Again, that's a little undercut by the EPA's position yesterday that they're not really relying upon the fact that the lot is really close to Priest Lake. They're relying upon the fact that it's supposedly adjacent to the ditch on the other side of the, the road on the other side of the property. They're not relying on that fact alone. They're relying on a bevy of factors. And I guess with, I, maybe I'm putting a kick me sign on me, but like recognizing <laughs> that it's not a perfect solution like, what is wrong with call, calling the Army Corps free of cost and asking them, like, why didn't they do that? Like, they didn't. And that was available. Like, that, I don't, I, I see why that's not a perfect solution, but like, that was a solution. They didn't, it just sort of adds on to the fact that they were going to do what they were going to do. And they didn't care that it was maybe not lawful. They were going to do what they were going to do. And that is sort of why they got slammed. And yeah, it imputes One a lot of facts day. that are not in the record. Um, it is an APA case. Um, but I, I still think that's circular. I still think it begs the question, what in most people's ordinary experience building a, a house on a vacant lot would, would induce them to, to think, maybe I'd better check with the army.
about whether it's okay to build here. I think that's not, I think that that's a more obvious question to people with a lot of experience in this policy space. Um, but I think once, you know, we step out of our professional um, cohort, that's a very counterintuitive proposition to, to, to most people. Well, we're getting into anecdotes, but I just have to point out that during COVID, my wife and I moved to a nine acre farm. We have a wetland in it. Like it's pretty obvious where the wetland is and you'd be stupid to want to build a structure on it. And I guess I, I just don't really fully buy that here. Like it seems like there, there was water still there even when they put the gravel on it. So I'm just there's I don't know. I, I don't I don't buy the fact that this is some sort of innocent landowner who really, you know, had the government come down on them unfairly. It seems like they were half asking for this dynamic to take place. Well, if, if I could just add um, uh, one more point to Tony's point and setting aside the, the, whatever one thinks of the SAC's particular facts with respect to this JD process. Uh, if it were as simple as, as just giving a call to the Army Corps and then you get a letter the next day, that would be one thing. But the JD process is a pretty significant administrative action in its own right. And to get a, a an approved JD from the Army Corps under the current legal regime is something that costs usually quite a lot of money because it requires a lot of consultant analysis to do a significant nexus analysis and to do the wetlands delineation and all of that, which you have to have done before the Army Corps will then process it. And then, of course, there may be back and forth and then there can be an administrative appeal of the JD and all that. So, you know, it was a lot easier in the 90s when the, uh, the when the particular JD had issued with the, for the Sackett's property was issued because the standard of jurisdiction was so broad that really one could, I think, um, without much effort, probably make an affirmative jurisdictional determination. But but that hasn't really been the case since Rapanos. And so there there hasn't been since 2006, I think a really easy way and certainly not a quick way to find out whether one's regulated. Well, that, so we're at the top of the hour and I, I want to be respectful for our viewers. This, this has been a great, robust debate and um, really appreciate both uh, or all the panelists engaging. Uh, let me throw out a couple questions in conclusion. Uh, that just to offer your thoughts, any any speculation on who might write the decision, uh, and if you hazard a guess on on uh, how it might turn out. Well, I'll give Damien the last word, so I'll go first. Um, I think it will be five four or six three for EPA, and I think that uh, maybe Kavanaugh writes the decision. I uh, um, I I don't disagree with the with Professor Snape's numbers, although I, I certainly would would hope that that, that they um, that they go the other way. But I mean, I can I cannot see unless, for example, one. Well, let me simply say I cannot see how EPA can win to the extent that EPA is basing it, its case at this point on application of Justice Kennedy's significant nexus test. I think the only I think the EPA win would be would be an adoption of a test that is that is broader than Justice Scalia's standard, but narrower than what Justice Kennedy articulated. But I I think that 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 there would be a supermajority in favor of rejecting the significant nexus test as it was applied by the Ninth Circuit, certainly. And um, as to who who would write it. Um, Justice Kavanaugh is certainly a plausible one, but I also think maybe the Chief Justice himself might be willing to do it. And one last point, I wouldn't be surprised if Justice Thomas writes a concurrence <laughs> indicating that he's skeptical as to whether even Priest Lake is is, is subject to um, uh, federal regulatory authority. He was the only justice who really asked a question about that second part of the case as to uh, how does the channels of commerce power, the commerce clause more generally limit, if at all, Congress's power to regulate wetlands or other waters. Thanks, Tony. Any closing thoughts? Well, I'm just really praying that it's not multiple opinions, each with a section on how to apply marks to the overall decision. Yeah, there was a question that someone asked about Marx. I have no idea what the, <laughs> I'd have to ask someone else about what happened in that case. I agree with Tony. Very good. We'll end it there. Thank you so much, panelists. Uh, Jack, back to you. 
Thanks, Matt. Uh, yes, well, it was an excellent discussion. And uh, on behalf of the Federal Society, I want to thank all of our panelists for participating with us today and uh, for the audience for joining in. We always welcome listener feedback by email at info at fedsoc.org. Uh, and as always, keep an eye on our website for announcements about upcoming webinars. We actually have another Courthouse Steps webinar today at 3 p.m. Eastern that will be covering uh, Merrill v. Milligan and will feature David Warrington and Michael Domino. Um, thank you all for joining us today. And with that, we are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.